Good afternoon and welcome to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, of course. It is July the 6th, 2020 on this Monday afternoon, and we have a program scheduled for you. We have a very special guest who is joining us today, and I'm looking forward to this because I actually have been talking about mental health uh, with people. I just did a, a local podcast for Gaston County and speaking with a mental health professional and just trying to understand some of the behaviors. So, you know, we're following that up with today on Black Talk Radio News, a program that's going to focus on psychiatry and its racist history, as well as eugenics. So join, joining me is the Public Affairs Director of the Organization, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, which is the world's leading mental health uh, industry watchdog and is responsible for helping to enact more than 180 worldwide reforms that protect the public from abuses committed under the guise of mental health. So we want to go ahead and welcome in Reverend Fred uh, Shaw Jr., who is going to speak to us about these issues today. Uh, let me get you unmuted, sir. I think I have to ask to unmute you. Are you able? Okay. Do we have you, Mr. Shaw? I think we do. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Th thank you for uh, joining us today on Black Talk Radio News. Well, first of all, let me thank you for allowing me to come on the show with such an important message. Um, you know, we're dealing with a, a litany of things in our society right now. And one of the things that is overlooked is the effect that mental health has had on this whole overall scene. So uh, I appreciate you. Now, I just want to uh, share what was shared with me by your organization, just to give the listening audience or the viewing audience as well, um, what to expect. So anyway, we'll, Dr. Um, excuse me, Reverend Shaw will be discussing eugenics and racist history of psychiatry from weapons to brain surgery, electroshock and mind altering drugs. African-Americans have been targeted. The most brutal, brutal racists were inspired by eugenics, which justified injustice, inhumanity and denial of human dignity to millions. And there are dozens of studies showing how psychiatric, psych, uh, psychiatric, psycho psychological racism had permeated and remained entrenched in our society. Astoundingly, in a January 2020 article, okay, this is January 2020, uh, Janice A. Sabine, a PhD at MSW, a research associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics and Medical Education at the University of Washington School of Medicine showed this still stereotypical view in medicine. So, so Reverend Shaw, if, if I will, just before we get into, you know, the, uh, what you're going to be discussing with you, you know, I have long questioned the field of psychology, and I don't mean to say it in a disrespectful way or, or as if I'm saying it's pseudoscience, but I always had questions about if I'm being analyzed by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or let's say, for example, 
my wife, and I'm not married, by the way, but my wife, because we know oftentimes when there's a divorce and custody for kids, sometimes they order people to get psychological evaluations. And I'm, and I actually, I was in a situation like that when I was seeking custody of my kids, and that was ordered by the courts. And I was like, okay, but how your answers are based on whether or not the subject is being truthful with you or not. And people can be deceptive. So I just always have had questions. And then the historical racist history of that field where they were basically, you know, in the area of phrenology, you know, checking the skull and things of that nature. So can you give us an introduction into eugenics and race, racist history as it pertains to psychiatry in the United States? Well, basically, we would start with psychiatry has never been a friend of American Blacks. Uh, when you look at their history, starting at its inception with Dr. Benjamin Rush, who said that Black people's skin was dark because we had a disease akin to leprosy and that white should stay away from us. And the only way to know if we were cured or sane is if we turned white. That word for that uh, description was called negritude. And negritude. that is what Dr. Benjamin Rush himself, who is on, by the way, who was on the seal of the American Psychiatric Association up until two or three years ago, and they still give awards out in his name. Wow, wow. Is it, wasn't there also in the field of psychology a term to describe a mental, they, they were calling enslaved victims, people who had been victimized by slavery in the United States would escape the, escape the plantation. If I recall correctly, I think they call that draped to media or something like that. Yeah, the word was actually drepidomania. Drepidomania. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, drepidomania. Drepidomania, runaway slave. A mania, of course, meant crazy. So what they said, that regardless of the horrendous conditions that the slave may have been living in, the fact that master could come and take your wife out of your bed, he could pass her around to his friends as, as entertainment. Uh, he could sell your children. You as a man could be raped in front of your family, beaten and castrated. And they said, and this was Dr. Samuel Cartwright, said that if you ran away from those conditions, you were mentally ill. But even more than that, if you backtalked, that was a sign of mental illness. If you disobeyed, it was a sign of mental illness. So basically what they did was just lock the African into the system. And if he did not tolerate the conditions, then they basically said that he is mentally ill. And, and in a way, that's what they do today. If you don't fit within the box that they want you to fit in, you can be determined to be mentally ill. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, so science or in this particular area of the medical field, psychiatry, played a role in normalizing the enslavement of African descendant people and Africans. It's what it sounds like to me. It was like it was justifying um, you know, the, the institution of slavery, because it seems like it's saying 
they're not human. They don't have feelings like white folks or emotions like white folks and urges like white folks. Something is wrong with them that they would rebel against, you know, their uh, chattel enslavement. That's what it sounds like. Psychiatry has played a role in normalizing racism, white supremacy, and slavery. Well, it's been the medical model that has justified this all the way through. See, when we are uh, 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 chastising the police departments, well, that's good to do that. But however, if you don't go to the source or the origination point and handle that, the condition will continue. If, you know, psychiatry comes all the way to the day. In the 1950s, they said Blacks, Native Americans, and Mexicans should never be allowed to have children. In the 1960s, they said that Black people suffered from protest psychosis and schizophrenia and, and uh, delusions of grandeur during the Civil Rights Movement that these Black leaders was creating that because we're not supposed to be able to think. We're not supposed to be able to protest. We're not supposed to be able to stand on our own two feet. So. This thing is coming down. Now, we're, we're in the 60s right there. But let's fast forward, because there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about in between. But let's fast forward um, to the day. Dr. Uh, Grossman, uh, David Grossman, who was a professor of psychology from West Point, was going to police departments teaching his bulletproof mind method, which has a concept in it of killology. And it was teaching them that you should not hesitate to kill, that you shouldn't feel bad about killing. In fact, he even advertises as part of it that when you kill somebody, that you have better sex at night. And this is wow. being taught in the police departments. You know, you, you brought know? up, you brought up, um, Reverend Shaw, you brought up something that I brought up with a mental health professional in my in uh, my local area right here. As I was discussing, you know, why do we, first of all, police have um, higher suicide rates than any other profession. Police have higher suicide rates. Then according to an uh, organization that looks at uh, women and domestic violence and policing, they said that police officers are four times as likely to commit acts of domestic violence in their families than the general population. So I'm like, there, there seems to be a mental health crisis going on at the police department with all these suicides and, and uh, uh, domestic violence, but yet, you know, we have these people on the street. Is it any wonder that they end up committing acts of violence where, you know, violence cannot be justified? And so now I'm hearing from you, and I think I may have heard in the past, um, but I just can't re recollect it right now. But I think I have heard about psychiatrists going around, you know, uh, actually uh, pushing these officers to commit gross acts of violence. This is despicable, sir. Well, actually, what you have is the fox guarding the hen house. Okay. If I create the problem and they get paid to fix it, what kind of position is that? You know, it's like, so I teach him killology. He goes out and kill. It's a lot of uproar. Then we got to call for mental health to help us out. I mean, what that's a, a very unique position to be in when you benefit on the crimes and the situations and the crisis that you created. That's true. I think they call that the Hegelian dialect. 
uh, where the person who created the problem then presents himself as the problem solver and then implements the solution. So it, it's certainly a scam. Now, you know, also, according to the information that was sent to me by your organization, I just really appreciate the work uh, that you all have doing because I've been following your organization for a number of years and I really appreciate the work that y'all do. I do want to let anyone who's watching or listening right now that if they have a question or, or comment for our guest today, you can text it in at 704-817-2161. That's 704-817-2161 if you would like to make a short comment or ask a question on topic um, that we are discussing today. I, I'm not looking at comments that may be on, you know, the social media sites. Please text me if you want to get get your question or comment into the live stream. So can you, we talked a little bit at the beginning about the past, you know, talking about its role in slavery and, and racism and white supremacy um, in this country, but this still permeates today. You know, I, I opened up by talking about a January 2020 article by Janice A. Sabin, um, who takes a look at stereotypical views in medicine. Can you talk a little bit more about how this is hurting us today, this psych psychiatric psychological racism, as I believe y'all call it? Well, let, let, let me give you a real easy way to understand what is going on. Many of us have been pretty much locked in our homes because of the COVID-19. Um, people have claimed that they had been anxiety. If, if, if they did or not, it has still been a very uncomfortable situation to not have your normal interactions in life, not being able to be with your family, not being able to have people who normally would check on you. Everyone's afraid. Then on the heels of that, we have the protest and, and, and we've seen some racist things going on. But in the midst of all of that, when you look at the situation that people are in, the behavior is normal behavior for the situation that we're in. If mom dies, then we're going to feel sadness. If they label that sadness at a certain state depression, it's still sadness. Anybody from, from Eve, when her son Cain killed Abel, have been remorse about the, the people dying or being sad behind them dying. So these are normal reactions that mental health take and then try to label and then give you mind-altering drugs to deal with this. Now, let me let me let me let me just say this. When I debate psychiatrists, and they haven't debated me in the last 15 years or more, they won't debate me if they know who I am. I ask the question they never could answer. What could be wrong with a child that you could give him a drug that could cause him to drop dead, kill himself, or kill others? Mm -hmm. what, what could be wrong with a kid that we would give them the death penalty? Now, I'm not advocating old methods or whatever. I'm just saying that my mother and father had the cure for ADHD. Now, if a kid was really messed up, everybody knew that. You know, they go with this, remove the stigma 
of mental health. There's never been a stigma about mental health in the black community. The black community, when Uncle John could no longer function, the black community would put Uncle John in the back room. The oldest child had to stay with him. Everybody in the community knew that Uncle John had an issue. In case he got out, they were able to bring Uncle John back to the house. All of the kids knew to watch for Uncle John. So there was no secrets. So this whole thing, removing the stigma, is a marketing campaign by mental health to be able to make the money on black and brown people that they're not normally getting. Black people, just on the history of psychiatry, should never go into it. This is all out of the eugenics. And then eugenics, to make it real simple, is just talking about, you know, you meaning good and, and the genics talking about the genes. And so it's what who has the good genes. It implies perfect race. And so Wow, I never well, knew that. Yeah, so when we when we look at it, when they see the Tuskegee experiment, where they injected these people with syphilis and then over a 40 year period of time, never even gave them the cure, even though the cure was available. You do that to people that you consider do not have good genes. Now, if psychiatry says that man is an animal and we were what, three fifths of a man? Then we were below being an animal. So for them to be able to electroshock us without anesthesia, for them to be able to give us mind-altering drugs that cause us to run out and act in aberrated ways that cause police to not be able to interpret what we're doing and get us shot and killed. And then you don't even come and analyze and say, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be giving these drugs because people are behaving in a way that they normally don't behave. Because I mean, you know, most of us, somebody put a gun on us and they're in a position of authority, we raise our hands and give up. But if you're tripping off these drugs and you're acting in a way that the cop can't interpret, then it leads to shootings and things like that. Because, you know, everybody in the, at the end of the day want to go home, including officers. You know, you mentioned um, students or young, young, and then it's mostly young black males, I feel, from what I've read that are targeted with these ADHD drugs. And, you know, I might have been labeled that when I was in elementary school, as I look back. You know, I, I um, was born here in North Carolina, but my mom migrated, like a lot of other people in the South, to mm -hmm. the North in, in the 60s. So she went to Detroit. Um, where she found employment and education there. So uh, I, I was there uh, before they started busing children, and I was one of the first, you know, children to be bused. So I was taken from my black school where my mom was, you know, also a teacher's aide, and, and I just felt like, you know, the entire school staff was my family. It just really felt, it didn't feel like school. It felt sort of like camp or something. I just had a really wonderful experience at that school to being ripped out of that school and then sent mm -hmm. to a predominantly white school in Detroit across time, across town. And I began to act out. I began to put tax in the teacher chair. I, I'm, I'm serious. I began to act out because I didn't want to be there. That was like a traumatizing experience uh, uh, for me. 
And then later, as I got up in the high school, and I'm going to share something personal with myself, um, uh, with my audience that they may not know, but I did not meet my own father until I was like 20 years old, right before I went into the military. But while I was in high school, I was trying to find, I felt that missing from me and I was acting out and things of that nature. So I, I feel like instead of getting to the root cause of why some young men or some young women may be acting out, that they rather just, you know, uh, uh, psychoanalyze them and put them on these drugs because, you know, that's money because you got to keep buying the drugs. You got to keep getting those refills. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, let me just say this. If you, uh, being a veteran, you know, everyone is aware of what veterans sacrifice. And we thank you for your service. My problem is, is that they don't give you good service. It's no, like... They for your service, but they don't give you good service. In fact, uh, our research indicate that 20 to 22 veterans a day are committing suicide and we're not even at war. So it's like, why are they drugging the veterans exiting, you know, when they're coming back to the street? Some of them are not even evaluated and not even told the reason why they're being drugged. They're just being told, and I'm getting this, not from the studies, I'm getting this from personal conversations with veterans. You know, mm -hmm. I had a, a couple that visited, we have this museum called uh, Psychiatry and Industry of Death. And, in, and people come from all over the world and visit this museum. In fact, we're gonna have it on 3D pretty soon. It's gonna be able, you'll be able to tour it uh, pretty soon on, on, through the internet. But one couple in particular, a black couple, good-looking couple, young couple. They took their kid to school, came home, and then they both took the pill that they had been prescribed. They did not wake up to the next day. Now, let me show you how this affects us. If the emergency number had not worked, their children would have been turned over to children and family services because they would have been considered abandoned. So these people, just because somebody was able to respond, didn't have to fight the whole system and prove that they were not bad parents when they took a drug that was given to them. And what kind of drug makes you sleep the whole day? You can't feel here. You don't even wake up in the night. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so these are the things that we investigate and not only am I uh, the director of public affairs and the international spokesperson for CCHR, I'm also the executive director and first vice president of the Inglewood branch of the NAACP. And when I was the president of the Compton branch, I was able to unify with Citizens Commission on Human Rights. And we were able to get federal legislation passed uh, it was called the Child Safety Medication Act that said that parents could not be forced to put their kids on drugs as a condition for being in school. They would tell you that your child needed to see a psychiatrist or needed some medical. You say, I'm with this boy every day. I don't think he needs that. I just need to know when he's acting up. They would send you letters over time that would refer it to children's services who would go to mental health they would get a court order injunction and remove your kid from the home. 
Mm. We stopped that. That was actually signed into law by George Bush, the younger one. Okay. So those are the type of things that we do. Uh, these are the fights that we have. We believe that every individual has a right to decide what type of treatment that he should get. And if he is not to where he's capable of articulating what he wants, then someone in his family should be designated or an attorney or somebody to operate on his behalf. You That's know, all we're talking about is rights. Yeah, you know, and, and I want to take it back to this article, though, by Janice A. Sabian, a mm -hmm. PhD, which is in the information, you know, uh, that y'all sent me in the press release. And mm -hmm. there's something that's really, you know, bothering me. It's not really bothering me. And it's not really surprising. It's more sad because I had this conversation last night with this other mental health prof uh, professional to where I'm like wondering how the, is it that a racist white person can do something racist and then don't recognize it as being racism. It's like, you know, and he kind of compared it to an alcoholic that's in denial about his alcoholism. They don't see it as such. They don't see it. But it says here, though, um, she says that she says that the uh, information that she was researching showed stereotypical views in medicine. She wrote, half of white medical trainees believe such myths as Black people have thicker skin or less sensitive nerve endings than white people. Sabine co concluded, as a nation, we must continue to reckon with the lingering history of racism in medicine. So my, my solution to that is, if a medical student sh um, shows these views or makes these views manifested during the course of their training, to me, that seems like automatic disqualification. It seems, it seems like, but they're just running them through, passing them through. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? How do we address racism in medical training? Well, I, I think what would be ideal is that when we discover that people have those type of viewpoints, let's start off with giving them retraining or a better mm -hmm. viewpoint. Because some of these people are getting these ideas in medical school. Some of these people are getting these ideas growing up and they don't even know that they're wrong. That's why sometimes racism is so hard to identify on the part of the racist because they would not believe that they are racist. They actually believe that what they have been taught is correct. So first of all, we always try to help a person by giving them the proper information and, and training. And then we start escalating from there so mm -hmm. that you know now you give him the training and he sticks to the idea and then you go in and you show him how that's not true and then he sticks to the idea then at that point you might have to get rid of that individual but most people i think i think majority of society you know is trying to help get along that if you give them the proper data and prove that that information is true then they will respond in a, in a, in a much better way yeah. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense. You just don't want to throw people away. You want to give them an opportunity to change with, exactly. with the proper training and, and correct information. Uh, um, now, let's talk about current statistics, abuse of Amer African-Americans under the guise of mental health. I want to look at one of the bullet points where it says African-Americans are overrepresented in restraint-related deaths of children, 
and adults with disabilities accounting for 22% of the deaths studied while representing only 13% of the U.S. population. You know, um, I'm also an abolitionist, a modern-day abolitionist. I recognize that the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery um, because it says that it's abolished except as a punishment for crime. And so as you was talking about earlier, you know, seeing the underlying causes of the police brutality, the quote unquote mass incarceration, which I call prison slavery per the 13th Amendment. And I'm trying, you know, to get people to understand that it's all related. It's all pointing right back to slavery, that even racism was a construct to, to maintain slavery and transform it into a race-based slavery. And one of the things as an abolitionist, as I looked at all these stories coming out of the jails, in the prisons, is, is you know, a lot of people being restrained in these chairs and, and dying. And then you have medical professionals in the jail or in the prison who pretty much co-signs on to the, I would call, medical maltreatment of these prisoners. You got any thoughts, any further thoughts on these restraint-related deaths? Well, well, let's, 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 uh, let's break this into two parts. And um, let's deal with the first part that you just said. And then we'll deal with the restraints. Um, when we... When we look at from slavery to the modern day uh, prison industrial complex, you're looking at money. White people didn't wake up one day and just say, hey, you know what? I think I want to see Black people work. I think I could just get a lot of pleasure of watching Black people work. This was done for money. This is what all of this is about, is money. The prescribing of these drugs and to the degree that they do, where you have children from seven to nine years old that can be on as many as seven and nine, 13 different drugs, it's about money. It's, you know, the prison industrial complex is about money. This is all about money. It's like, if it wasn't the money in it, people wouldn't spend the time to do it. But there's a lot of money in it. And in this country, unfortunately, we would rather keep our money intact than to make people better. So we give a kid a drug that will cause, he came in because mother died. He was labeled depressed. Then he starts taking the drugs and he starts getting angry. Well, that wasn't what he came in for was being angry. So now he's taking those drugs, he's getting angry, aggressive, he's attacking people, but they give him another drug to handle that. And then he starts hearing voices. Well, he came in for depression. Now he didn't got angry. Now he's hearing voices. So we give him another drug to handle the voices. Now he's suicidal. And it just keeps going on. And you have little seven-year-old kids on nine different drugs. So that's what we're looking at. We're talking about the money aspect of this. Now, when we get with the restraint, that's a very interesting thing. And this is something we need to get to all of the black advocates, activists and advocates. We're talking about restraint, how they killed George Floyd, how other people have died in chokeholds and gray, different people. But the problem is, is that in mental health centers, people are choked out every day saying that they can't breathe. And some of these kids are nine years old. Mm -hmm. 11 years old, 16 years old. 
being choked out and can't breathe. It's like when you can't breathe and somebody's taking the breath of life from you and they can't recognize that they are actually killing you, be it on the streets of Minnesota or in one of these modern inst uh, institutions, we have an issue here. And how people are restrained should be looked at first. So let and me just let me just interject for clarification for the audience and for myself. So it, when y'all when you all are talking about African Americans being overrepresented in restraint related deaths of children and adults and disabilities, y'all not talking about what's happening in the jails. You're talking about what's happening in the psychiatrist's office or the or the so it's a difference there, right? And we I have to say we really don't hear about those sort of deaths. We may hear about restraint-related deaths in the jail or in the prison, because there is, rightly so, a lot of focus on the criminal justice system. But you're, you all are telling us that these sort of deaths are occurring in these medical centers where they're supposed to be helping people. Is that correct, sir? Exactly, and they're helping, and they're happening to children. You know, luckily so far in our society, we're not seeing the videos of people choking out, police choking out nine-year-olds and causing them to die. But that that is occurring in mental hospitals. And so, you know, while we're focusing over here, looking at the police, we need to focus more on what gave them that viewpoint, what gave the, the medical students the viewpoint that black people's skin was thicker, what's given, what is behind that if we're in the year 2020, when we're supposed to have clear vision, that we're still going with these old models and doing these same things, you know? And, and, and sometimes I wonder if it's fear, sometimes I wonder if it's racism, sometimes I wonder if it's just privilege, but whatever it is, we have to come to grips that all men are created equal, at least on a spiritual level. Well, my mom we would say that. that the problem is hate, that they hate. She says hate comes in many forms, so uh, it's hate. Now, talk to me about what is known as uh, psychological profiling. A New York Law School Journal report in 2017 highlighted continued psychological profiling. I don't think I've ever heard that term, you know, among my circles and, and peers. Can you tell us about psychological well, profiling? Well, you know, that can mean a, a several things. One is, let's go with the viewpoint that you have that Black people may be inherent criminals in the first place. So when you see that Black person, you're forming the opinion that this individual is a criminal or a drug dealer or somebody, and that's a form of psychological profiling an individual. Also, we can look at it from the point of view that Black people seem to be, and I'm one of those individuals, more animated a lot of times when we talk and think that can be construed as being aggressive, being, you know, so, you know, it can have a lot of different meanings but I, I'm just trying to keep it where, first of all, I don't want to take the shoes of the psychologist because I don't believe in their diagnosis or anything anyway. I know the history behind some of these diagnoses. I know that they're not based on any true facts. 
are, are real trials. I know that these disorders are voted into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual by a show of hands. So forgive me when I kind of rebel against these terms because I don't believe them anyway. You know, it is, um, yeah, do people go through things? Yeah. But when I look at it, I want to see people get full medical examinations before we ever talk about psychological. I want to be able to know that the person is not anemic when you label them depressed. I want to make sure when you say he's babbling incoherently, he's not sitting there with a brain tumor. I, I want to deal with those type of things so that we can find out before we ever start talking about uh, uh, people with disease. Let's make sure there's no underlying cause that might be causing that. You know, but bad heart makes you sluggish. Well, if you give me a pill when I have a bad heart, now you're delaying my care, my treatment. You should have sent me to a medical doctor where they could have did all of the physical tests, but you're saying, oh, well, he's sluggish because he's depressed. Do you know I have uh, diabetes? I've gone to the training for diabetes so you can eat better and all of that type of stuff. At the end of that, they ask you a questions about, they ask you questions about, uh, do you get depressed uh, and things like that because of diabetes. Now diabetes can cause depression, but you're trying to now take the symptoms and make them like, I got mental illness. When I said I wasn't taking the test because they tell you it's optional. I got a follow-up call. Ask me why wouldn't I take the test? I said, I didn't want to. Well, don't you think that might be an indication that there's some sign wrong or maybe there's a deeper rooted problem? I don't want you to analyze me. You know what I'm saying? I'm okay. Well, we just want to make sure that you know. This is a way to get you into that mental health field where they can start that drugging. And if you give them the, the information they need, now they can use medical pressures to try to, to swage you in. So I'm, I'm just saying, you know, we, we got to look at this field for what it is. It's a profit-making entity that does not care about its patient, have never even considered the side effects of these drugs or electroshock or any of that in their equation and continue to do it even after they watch the people deteriorate. Now, going back to well, the term psychological profiling, I was mm -hmm. psychologically profiled. So I've been participating with uh, others in Gaston County and in different protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Um, you know, just yesterday we were at the county courthouse protesting the uh, Confederate monument statue by reading uh, speeches from abolitionists who spoke out against slavery. But, you know, during all, all of these four past four weeks of me being involved, my daughter comes to me and says that some of her friends told her I look scary, you know, and it, it's not the first time. And I really didn't know how to respond to that, you know, but I'm saying, you know, like James Baldwin said, to be a black man, is to be angry all the time at what we see when we see these things. So, you know, I, I'm sometimes wondering, am I scaring people away by because I speak passionately, because the way God made my face, my eyebrows to where when I'm serious, you can tell I'm serious. And when I'm joking, you can tell I'm joking. 
But the fact that someone would tell my daughter, oh, your dad looks scary. I'm like, oh, so I'm supposed to be, you know, looking like what? While I'm out here protesting, you know, race, institutional racism and white supremacy. Well, the thing is, is that when we're dealing with those type of things, there's nothing we can really do about it. And then all you can do is ask your daughter, what do you consider? Do you consider me scary? I mean, because there's going to be somebody that criticizes something, you know, and, and um, hold on, what, something happened with my phone here. Oh, we have you back. We, we had lost your video, but we have you back now. Yeah, you know, I, on the flip side of that, I was thinking to myself, though, you know, this is my daughter, and I'm saying to myself, well, I hope I do look scary to these fellas that might think they want to mistreat you or something like that. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is this. It's scary to Black people to not be able to be pulled over by the police and have death be the outcome of a taillight. Um, I don't know about you, but I've given a $100 bill and then somebody tell me this is not a real $100 bill. You know, uh, I even took a one bill back to the bank and say, I got this from you guys and people are telling me it's fake. So, but nobody called the police. Nobody <laughs> did that type of stuff. and. At some point in our society, we're gonna to have to be sane enough to know what warrants the death penalty and what doesn't. I mean, you know, the, what we saw with George Floyd is rarely captured on film, but it goes on all the time. And as a black man, you and I know it. So- Well, well Dr. Yeah. Reverend, there was actually on film, story came out last night where a, a police officer who also worked security at Walmart uh, started shooting at a, a suspected shoplifter um, and, and shot him a couple of times and could have hit people in the parking lot. So <laughs> it is starting to get captured on film more, but I mean, that just blows my mind. What is going through the mind of this officer, even though he off duty, that he would open fire in a, in a parking lot full of other civilians to to me out the death penalty for a suspected shoplifter. Well, yeah, you know, and 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 just, just let, let me just say, when I answer these kind of questions, uh, I'm not speaking necessarily for Citizens Commission on Human Rights per se, because we deal with a specialized field and we deal with, with the uh, psychiatric injustice. But I will answer the questions and I won't, duck the question. We have people who devalue the the lives of black folk. And so we, they can be very reckless in handling us. Most people don't know. Well, a lot of people do know is I used to be a sheriff deputy. And so I know what they can do or can't do. I know uh, the racist aspects of it. But then at the same time, I also know, and I can honestly say, 80% of all law enforcement officers I ever met would run into a burning building to save a child of any color. They will risk their lives to save a person of any color. But you do have a hardcore group uh, of badge-wearing criminals, and you do have a lot of people 
who are the effect of what we call good policing today. You can see it in, you know, you're watching television programs that, that basically show you violating people's rights and so forth. So, you know, there's this image that how you can handle black people and the image of, one example was the, the guy who got killed at the Wendy's. Now, you know, I'm not gonna get into his behavior and all of that, what was right or wrong. However, that individual ended up dead. But a week or two earlier, I saw a white guy fight two policemen, take the billy club, whack them with it, and then steal their police car. And the shot wasn't fired. So, and I know that this can be individual handlings and every right. officer isn't the same. So right. no, I'm not, and I don't want to blanket all law enforcement as being bad, but I think about 80% of them have a rogue tendency, but I mean, 80% of them are, are very good officers, people who care about the community and about 20% have rogue tendencies and, and, and can be the effect of evil officers. Yeah, 20% is still a huge number. Um, you know, and then we had, you mentioned Bush, um, W, um, during 2006, the FBI came out with the report about uh, white supremacists, quote unquote, ghosting, don't have tattoos and, you know, uh, giving Nazi salutes to be easily identified as white supremacists, but said that, you know, they had infiltrated law enforcement at every level. But I'm like, what do you mean infiltrated? Infiltrated means that they weren't there before, and we know all throughout history that white supremacy and policing has always, you know, uh, uh, been hand in hand with each other, especially with police uh, descending from the slave patrols. But, you know, as we get ready to come to a, a close, I do want you to talk about this because this is scary. And I actually talked to someone who, who this happened to, but... In the information that your organization sent me, it says in one state, as an example, African-Americans are disproportionately subjected to coercive and restrictive measures, including 72-hour involuntary psychiatric commitment, seclusion, restraints, and forcibly drugs. So are, are Black people being kidnapped off the street and being put into these places? under involuntary psychiatric uh, commitment. How, how, how big of a problem is that? They're not kidnapping. They're just using the laws that they have available that are not available to even other fields of medicine. Okay. Um, mental health is one of those industries that it seems like you have no rights, um, where you can't tell them, I don't want this treatment, or I don't want that treatment. So we're looking at... Uh, a different type of animal there because now in the so-called best interest of the individual, we can violate his rights. I don't know why you can't put him in a quiet room, a padded room, and just let him calm down. Maybe put on some soft music to help him calm down. I don't know why we have to enforce injections when those shots themselves cause the psychosis. I knew somebody in a mental institution and one of the nurses came over and told the mother, hey, the Abilify is what's causing the paranoia. You see what I'm saying? The so drug. paranoid, but they got him on Abilify. The nurse comes and tells the mother, I'm just telling you, it's the Abilify causing 
the paranoia. Wow. So everywhere else, I'm a diabetic. I can tell the doctor I'm not taking my diabetic medicine. He can't make me. But when we're in a mental institution, you can force your will. You can tell, if me and you were in a mental hospital and they said they wanted to give us electric shock and we said we don't want it, they can go to court and get an injunction to force electric shock us. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Now, so what? these are things that we're looking at. This is what the problem is. But I just want us to identify the real problem. I don't want to say all white folks are bad because it was white folks that helped us get through the Underground Railroad. It was white folks that marched with Martin Luther King in the 60s. It was white folks that have stood up for us sometime more than we've stood up for ourselves, even though you got that flip side. Let us put the blame on who created the mindset mm. that it was okay to be white and and wrong to be black. Let us go to the origin of these things. Slavery has been on the planet forever. It was the brutal brutality of the slavery in America that separated it from everybody else. Right. Who gave this idea that it was okay to treat the slaves the way it was? Who said that if you ran away, you were mentally ill? Why was that done? Was it to just further enslave the slave or what? What was the purpose? So let's go to the origin. We have not only where um, the slaves were mistreated with these labels, but we've watched mental health take out religion, subvert education, pretty much everything that is hurting the black community right now, from lack of morals to lack of education, all that we can find its root traced back to mental health. Mm. And so that's what we have to deal with. Let's kill the head of the snake. And then we'll find out that maybe a lot of the rest of these things, and if I can wrap up with, with, with this, the fruit of mental health, you know what the Bible says, uh, you know, you will know them by their fruit. Right. 20 to 22 veterans killing themselves a day. A homeless population that has exploded. Kids can't read across the nation. All of these things are coming. What, where has mental health benefited us other than being called mental health? Which is not mental health. It's mental control. If it was mental health, we would think faster, clearer. Our IQs would expand. It is mental control. Johnny can't be controlled. We give him a drug to subdue him. Mm -hmm. um, before you leave, I just want to, uh, um, if you will, give us a little bit more information because I, I saw this on your website when I went there today. Give me just a second. I'm trying to pull up the screen. I'm still getting used to this, this platform, but uh, this looks pretty interesting. A uh, therapy of torture, the truth about electroshock. Is this something that uh, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights produced? And uh, how can we watch it? Is it available now to watch? You can watch it on the internet. Just go to uh, Citizens Commission on Human Rights, uh, uh, INT. If not, just look. Oh, even simpler, just look up therapy of torture. And you'll be. And I'm actually in that video. Okay. So, um, but it's available for free on the internet. Um, I can always 
mail you a personal copy uh, for having done this show. Um, I hope we can do follow-up shows. You can, your audience can reach me if they, in fact, I do want to talk to you off the air on something I've created a, a task force mm -hmm. uh, against eugenics-based racism. And uh, that might be something you would like to be involved in. It's not a lot of work. Uh, most of my team do the research and things like that. But sometimes we may need to come on your show and be able to Oh, tell my door is always open to the community and people that's trying to produce justice. So, so yeah, I look forward to working with your organization in the future. And I'm glad that you could be with us uh, here today to discuss this very important issue that really doesn't isn't talked a whole lot about in the mainstream. So uh, again, how can people, if they want to get in touch with you or others in your organization and invite you to either do a program or speak or uh, assist them with whatever project they're working on, how can people contact you? They can, they can just email me at F, like in Frank, S-H-A-W, J-R at yahoo.com. That's F Shaw Jr. at yahoo.com. You just email me and say, hey, regarding the speaking engagement, I will turn them over to Sandy, who um, that you talk to and stuff. Sandy schedules and keeps everything rolling for the radio shows, making sure, because I tell everybody, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. But she has to make sure the schedule <laughs> and, and it's documented properly. So uh, they fshawjr at yahoo.com. Um, they should uh, go to Citizens Commission on Human Rights. You will get constant updates and and future shows. We could talk about these drugs, Ritalins, how you know how they made. We could send you powerpoints on some of this stuff. So we can we can work with you. Uh, I enjoy you and and the questions that you ask. And so let's just consider ourselves in a partnership. All right. Well, Reverend Shaw, thank you again for joining me on BTR News today. And you have a blessed rest of your day, sir. God bless you, my brother. All right. Okay, everyone, please continue to support the production of independent Black media. Uh, the Black Talk Radio Network is supported by the North Carolina-based nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. You can, we have a Facebook page. You can just go on Facebook, Black Talk Media Project. Read the about section. You'll know what type of work we are involved in and what we seek to do. But we are 100% um, uh, maintained by individual donors, individual donors uh, to our nonprofit. We don't get grants. We don't get corporate advertisement. And so we pretty much run in an ad-free platform. And so the only way that we can continue to bring you important conversations and information is if you, the listener or the viewer, supports the work. So again, you can make a donation at blacktalkradionetwork.com or on our Facebook page uh, at Black Talk Media Project. With that said, y'all be safe out there. Peace and blessings to all.